VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is our conversation with George Colkin, and this is in person, which is good because normally you're, you're on the phone. If you're wondering what it's going to be about, well, fundamentally, it's going to be about George and uh, my specialist subject. Your specialist subject. There you go, and see where it takes us. Um, George, <laughs> Gab. I want to get into because people people often ask me this. Uh, maybe they ask you this too. Would you want to be when you were? When you were a kid, like, did you picture yourself doing this, or did you have loftier ambitions? Uh, footballer, pop star, astronaut, pilot. But I mean, I, I, you know, no, it's not that. I feel like I've kind of absolutely fell into this profession, and still sort of haven't decided what I want to be when I grow up. When I say I kind of fell into it, I, I literally did. Really, there was journalism in my family, and got to the end of university not really having any idea what I was going to do I did history and politics and I had a year back in Newcastle it was just as Kevin Keegan was back as manager in 92 and I you know was going back to St James's I was there every weekend and obviously that was just an ext- I mean that is my touchstone in footballing terms really that season because there was just that incredible buzz around the city and around the team. You would get to the ground two hours before kickoff and queue up to be able to make sure you could get in. And I was unemployed. I went down to the training ground at the time when it was sort of open, open training. And I had this desire to kind of write about what I was watching for fanzines, you know, local fanzine, the mag. Should we tell our younger listeners what a fanzine is? Well, there's still some going. I'm pleased to say in the northeast, but yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, you couldn't ju- blog back then, could you? No, so there was no blogging, and it was it was literally magazines, and they were they were the sort of antidote, or they were the other side, you know, they were unofficial. It was fans, you know, writing about their teams, and I suppose we take that for granted now. But at the time, it was kind of quite a powerful movement, wasn't it? Sort of, this is the you know, this is the other side of it from the established sort of media and that was how I got into it and I guess a lot of people of my generation will be similar that um anyway and I loved doing that and then I did a journalism course for a year and then I applied for work experience in my local paper I got in and that became a job I didn't have to a- sort of apply for a job and I didn't have to kind of face the insane competition that people people do now so when I say I fell into it I'm more or less more or less dead really was it a case where sort of people who wanted to write about football, robot, or was it a, more like the voice of of just fans? Well, I, said, I, I mean, I wasn't sort of intrinsically involved in it. Uh, you know, I wasn't sort of involved in that movement. I just kind of contributed to it. But I guess the the thing was, if you go back then, 
There were, t- you know, if you bought a national newspaper, there were times when you just wouldn't see mention of your team, for example, or there was no feedback. So you would have somebody writing something, Moses with his Ten Commandments, bring them down and laying them out and stuff like that, and there was no kind of response to it unless you actually wrote to the newspaper. And I think there was that feeling that almost sort of take control of your own destiny a bit and you know it was connected to music it was connected to kind of culture and fashion all that kind of stuff it was a way of it was a way of football fans expressing themselves in a new and different way but doing it sort of directly and then those magazines would be you know sold outside stadiums or sometimes in local shops and things like that and it was unlike journalists the people who were writing perhaps weren't connected to their to the clubs in terms of contacts and in terms of knowing what was going in on the inside but it was a way of expressing love anger frustration all those things that people feel and doing it in your own terms and i think all of that stuff was incredibly influential to to the mainstream media so much so that i would say that you know i would be very surprised if you're if you sort of did a did a cross section of journalists working in papers now that many of them will have got their starts writing on fanzines or writing for them or uh, maybe it's more my generation than 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 sort of younger one thing that that always strikes me when i go back and and i a few years ago when I wrote my, my book with Gianluca Viale, I went back and I, and I spoke to sort of, I suppose, the generation of newspaper editors and newspaper men before yours. And in terms of what we would call broadsheet newspapers, even though they're all tabloid sized now, or in fact, the ones that still exist, the other ones are all on the web, but there was comparatively very little coverage of football in The Times, The Guardian, The Telegraph. I remember when I wrote the book, I forget who it was. Maybe it was one of our old bosses, Keith Blackmore, who said that basically in, it was 1992, precisely the time you're describing, I think they had three football writers uh, on this desk. And now we have many more. One of the things that always always struck me, and I'm speaking in very, very broad brushstrokes here, is that how here in England football historically really was a working class sport and there was almost uh, a divide and broadsheet newspapers didn't seem to necessarily certainly don't cover it to the extent that they cover it now but they almost mm. didn't necessarily seem to to take it seriously maybe part of that was also the the popularity of, of cricket and rugby or maybe just sports sections were smaller can you talk a little bit about that and yeah, is, is, I mean, is that something you experienced yeah definitely i mean when football shut down for the summer you just wouldn't get football in the paper. I mean, you would, there would be no football in the paper, or there might be half a page during those sort of summer months, and it would sort of, st- in some ways, maybe that maybe that was better, but because of course it's sort of twenty four hours a day, seven days a week now, and you know so much of it is kind of inflated the coverage. But um, yeah, it would just it would sort of dis- it would kind of disappear, be very little. And if it was about your club, who may have been crap at the time, which mine often was, then there would be certainly be nothing about it, kind of for weeks on weeks on end and yeah i know i mean the chronicle would i'd get those papers too and the chronicles would still have to fill it with football football all the time but so the local paper in certainly in newcastle even back then still provided sort of daily newcastle oh, coverage yeah. even in the summer yeah yeah so back then the chronicle for example had a very strong sunderland content as well even though it was the newcastle sort of evening chronicle and they would have sunderland stories but i mean 99.9 percent of the time it would be a newcastle back page and then newcastle newcastle stuff too one thing i remember and this might have been i think it was maybe a few years earlier but paul gascoigne he had some i remember this he had some sort of legal issue 
But this is just on Surely display. Not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hard to imagine, but and um, and I remember what the issue was, and, and the judge famously had never heard of him, and they <laughs> said, right. "Well, he's a footballer," and. You know, he said, oh, a footballer. Well, is that, would that be rugby football or association <laughs> football? Paul Gascoigne in the day was presumably as, as famous as, as, as David Beckham or whoever you want to name now. But, yeah, but, probably, really, but was probably, it really that divide back but, there? Yeah. I mean, I, mean I, just, I, I feel weird even saying this, but I was alive and I remember this when you had this kind of stuff going on in this country. It's not like it yeah. probably happened in no, the 1950s. No. But, I mean, I've not sort of, I suppose I've not thought about it in, in sort of detail before you know, chatting to you. I mean, but yeah, differently famous. I mean, he was incredibly famous, but football wasn't, you know... It was not mainstream. It wasn't fashionable in the same way. It wasn't... It, I mean, and 1990 was, of course, you know, one of those sort of fundamental moments. It was just before the start of the Premier League. 1990, I'm, I remember it vividly. I mean, I've probably sort of romanticised it so much in my in my head, but... You know, in the, the the 80s, it was horrible being a football fan in this country because of the conditions in the stadiums, because of all the stuff about hooliganism. You were treated like cattle and treated like animals, and there was the expectation you'd behave like that. And, you know, there were times in certain mid-80s onwards that our football stadiums were breeding grounds for, for the far right and things like that. You get the National Front distributing, you know, distributing material outside stadiums. I demonstrated outside St James as a, as a snotty 16-year-old. It wasn't a pleasant experience, really, going to, going to a football stadium, certainly not the way we think about it now when it's so kind of friendly and welcoming and things like that. And I don't, I mean, when you see stories now about bad behaviour in football stadium, the, the amazing thing is, is that we can focus down, pinpoint it to one individual saying something. I mean, I kind of, that blows my mind thinking back, you know, thinking back to kind of those times. Um, and obviously politically in the northeast, the 80s was incredibly difficult. And then suddenly 1990 exploded. You had Gaza, you had Bobby, you had this team full of kind of northeast talent being English and doing something good on the world stage in terms of football. That was incredibly important to me because, you know, my feeling of Englishness, I mean, I didn't feel English. I felt I felt like I was from the northeast and almost that the state was the enemy. I know that I'm talking, I mean, that's, that's a very sort of strong way of putting it, but that's how we felt at the time. And then football suddenly became acceptable and Gaza was the... Not saying he was particularly acceptable, but you know he was he was the kind of personality that kind of drove that. And then the Premier League happened, and the gentrification started. And then, yeah, football now is is so unbelievably different to what it was then. It was very raw back then. It was loud. It was messy. It was dirty. It was unpleasant sometimes. It was very raw, but there was this very visceral thing about it, and all that all that has changed. I'm curious what you said about. You didn't necessarily feel English. Presumably, you, you strongly identified with, with the Northeast, which, if you haven't figured this out by now, is where you're from. Yeah. Um, do you think that was at the heart of that, or is it a sense of regional identity, or was it a sense that, given what happened in, in this country in the 1980s, perhaps you felt maybe some of the, the, the regions outside of London had been neglected? Oh, or we, were just, was it, we were left behind, yeah. No, we were just left behind and 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 ignored. And a lot of that stuff is has been sort of, you know, that feeling has kind of been vindicated in some of the in some of the sort of cases we've seen seen since then, whether it's about the you know, the minor strike and, and other stuff. But um it was that feeling of being left to rot. So that was my that's my heritage, really. I mean, I've never, I never felt as English as I did in 1990. I mean, I felt, I mean, and 
what I kind of loved about the World Cup last year was that, you know, during, a, I mean, obviously very different, but during a time of huge political sort of strife and uncertainty and, and things like that and division, whether it's Brexit or, or, you know, austerity and various, you know, things like that, there was this sporting moment that kind of brought everyone together. And I look, I mean, I don't get very excited about England football, but I did get excited about seeing kids and people getting together in city centres and throwing beer all over each other when when England scored and this multicultural team and um, feeling proud about that. And, you know, that was a... I mean, I hope that that's as, you know, becomes a kind of fundamental thing to to this generation as 1990 did to me. It was, it was hugely important. It's funny because what, what you talk there about sort of the sense of community, the common experience of being part of, of something... I mean, this is something sociologists have gone on about for a long, long time. I think it was Putnam who kind of wrote a while back about how sort of one of the symptoms of the breakdown of society wasn't that he looked at bowling and how the same number of people went bowling, but there were many, there's, there's, a, there's a lot fewer people who did it as part of a bowling league where it was a social activity. And again, we're dealing in stereotypes, but you do get the sense that more broadly the influence of community groups whether it's it's church groups whether it's working men's clubs or unions or whatever that certainly that has diminished maybe compared to when we were kids but yeah. certainly for the, for the generation before us is football something that's filling that vacuum or do you think there needs to be more or because i mean some people just don't like football right did, did, yeah i mean that... it's, it certainly did it certainly did then i mean i think in that you know again to use sort of broad brushstrokes that feeling that you're part of something that's bigger than you something that represents you something that you know something that you can be part of and is bigger than you i mean certainly when again sort of 92 93 that kind of time when i was going back to kind of newcastle after college and getting a season ticket and all that kind of stuff i mean the feeling or you know football drove that feeling in Newcastle and of course I'm sure everyone knows but it's it's that one club city the stadium is right bang in the middle of the city and looks down on the city and when it's going well it does have that you know it does it should be a beacon and it certainly kind of was back then and it's thrilling it's exciting you can feel it in the bars you can feel it in the streets everybody talks about it um I mean a lot of that has gone. It's gone because the football club isn't doing what it should be doing, which is sort of being a kind of the life force of the city. It isn't. It's more or less closed off and it's sort of turned in on itself. And if at a fundamental level you want the club to represent you, it's not doing that. That has changed. Does football still do all that kind of stuff? I think it can do when it's done right, yeah. And, you know, sometimes I think I'm very... I'm very out of touch. I mean, I think that the demographics inside of a stadium, inside a stadium, have changed such a lot now. You do get a lot of tourists. You get a you get a lot of people who are sort of Saturday shoppers. Who that's what they do on a Saturday, but it's not necessarily the most important thing that they do. Whereas, again, for my generation, I mean, still for a lot of people, you can tell it is. But what you do is you go to the stadium and you get angry or you get incredibly happy, and it's sets the tone for the entire week i mean they you know there was all all that it's such a cliche but if newcastle win productivity in factories and shops and whatever goes up and things like that whether that's still the case i don't know but i mean that certainly was how it how it was voiceover describes what's happening on your iphone screen voiceover on settings so you can navigate it just by listening 
books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You talked about it being a one-club city and... and one of the things that, that I'm personally really interested in is the way football in general is, is now, but the Premier League in particular, since we're talking about this, is the economics of it are such that there's an obvious class system, right? No matter you know, no matter how bad Arsenal or Chelsea or, or City might do one year, there has to be really, really bad to finish outside the top yeah, ten. Yeah. And so the question then becomes: Imagine I'm a 10-year-old kid in Newcastle, and I feel the buzz around me. But for whatever reason, you know, maybe I can only get to St. James Park once in a while because maybe it's expensive for me or maybe my parents have to work weekends or take care of the elderly or, 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 or whatever. You know, there's 101 reasons why people can't get to games. There are other things to do. And so I watch Newcastle. I follow Newcastle through local radio. I watch the games, the, you know, the 10 games a year that they're on television. Yeah. And at the same time, I'm competing with Manchester City or Liverpool, who are on TV a lot more, also because they play in Europe or, or whatever. I'm competing with sort of a social media universe where there's cool clips and interesting people and stuff yeah. like that. And, you know, Pogba's probably more fun than Jamal LaSalle's. I don't know. Maybe he's not. Um <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard to maintain perhaps that that connection of fandom when I've got a team where, you know, people have to get excited about finishing yeah, 14th yeah, on absolutely. limited resources, and, and that's not going to change. So how do you reverse that? Can you reverse so, that? So, I mean, there are lots of things connected there, and, yeah, I completely I completely agree with that. I mean, try to sort of unpick some of that stuff. My, my problem, really, with Newcastle and the way it's run is that it's not making the most of what it has, and at the moment, what it, it's the only Premier League club from... You know the border, the border with Scotland down to Burnley or whatever. There's a huge potential sort of catchment area, and instead of everything being outsourced and instead of everything being stripped back, and instead of you know this club that doesn't think cups should be a priority, which was their official policy, you know, until a couple of years ago, or whatever, they should be pushing. They should be pushing every single 
campaign that's going on in the city through the council, whether it's about obesity or health or fitness or whatever it is, the club should be part of it. If there's a music festival in Newcastle, the club should be part of it. If there's anything like that, the club should be absolutely at the forefront of it or part of it, the Great North Run. The club should be encouraging people to take part in it and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's not fulfilling its potential in that sense because if you can't um, win every match, then you have to find some other way of making people proud. And I don't think that should be too difficult. I don't think that, you know, that side of it. And at the moment, one of the existential problems is what does the club stand for? What does it mean? What does it want to do? What is the big idea? For the last couple of seasons, there has been an idea because it was to get out of the championship and then it was to stay up. And then this season, suddenly it's like, okay, well, you know, what happens next? Oh, Rafa's having to compete against goal difference again, which is what he's doing. And the football's going to be terrible again. And we understand why he's doing it. And we share his frustration when he talks about, you know, this could be a big club, it has potential and all that kind of stuff. But it's just not... It's not reflecting that. It's not reflecting it on the pitch and it's not reflecting it off the pitch. The off the pitch stuff would take a bit of investment and a bit of an imagination, but it fundamentally it takes people at the top of the club who believe that that would be something worth doing and it's just not there. You have to find a way of feeling proud of what you're, you know, what you're watching or you feel part of it and that's, that's, the, that's the thing that's lacking. It's interesting because in some ways it's obviously a very imperfect uh, parallel, but there's a club called uh, Atalanta uh, near Milan. And in some ways it's a a similar situation in the sense, in some ways it's very different. Um, They're from Bergamo, which is actually, it's it's a very wealthy town, but they're 40 minutes away from two of the biggest clubs in Italy and they're stuck high up on a mountain and they have a lot of fierce local pride. But one of the things that, and feel free to go and suggest this next time you see Mike, um, (laughs) Every child that's born in the province, in in, in a hospital in in the province of of Bergamo, they get a letter uh, from the club with sort of one of those, you know, sort of strips that fits babies, up to to one-year-olds. And they get a certificate asking their parents on their behalf to sort of pledge their loyalty, saying, like, this is where you're from, this is your club, and... You know, it's it's a whole sort of official document where they say, like, look, if you if you're not one of us because your parents support another club or they're from another part, we fully understand. That's fine, <laughs> but you're but not we, welcome. But no, but <laughs> but we want we want everybody to be introduced to this club first. Yeah, we want great. to have a shot at it. Yeah, and and I, I know some people at the club, and they said it's it's been phenomenally successful. It's been kind of a slightly PR stunt. At first, they thought that was, was going to be. I think they've been doing this now for for five or ten years, but. People have really gotten into it, and the people who've gotten into it a lot of times are, are you know, sometimes the people who aren't into football, yeah. or people who, you know, maybe supported one of the bigger clubs down the road, but they're like, wow, you're really kind of making an effort here, yeah, yeah, and um, I don't know, just that as a suggestion, but I love that. I mean, and and I suppose it, in places like Newcastle and Sunderland, all that kind of stuff, people have that birthright in the northeast, but it's then what ties them to the club thereafter i mean you have to kind of be able to buy into something don't you and there has to be so a lot of people in my generation and i think this probably happens everywhere anyway but drift away from the football club because at some point it's the football that's getting in the way of life and the football not you're, so you're talking like kids more well so there's kids mortgage blah 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 yeah. but then it's actually on a saturday afternoon the football is the thing that costs a shed load of money 
it's the football that brings them no joy. It's the football that gets in the way of them having a nice time. And really, it's the it's the social side of it, spending time with friends and family that kind of that keeps them attached to the club. But that that phrase, you know, that that connection is fraying, and that's the sort of it's very difficult to measure that. I know a load of people who've walked away, but they have tended to be replaced so far. But you know, I think specifically talking about Newcastle, a lot hangs on Benitez and what happens in this summer. That you know, he is the person that is that is gluing the club together at the moment. There has to be something to buy into, and you know, it's just not there at the minute. George Culkin, thank you so much. Wonderful to be able to have an adult conversation. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 